Good morning. Welcome to Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino features local journalists in conversation about the week's local stories. Today I'll be joined by Ryan Burns of the online newspaper The Lost Coast Outpost. He broke the huge story last week about the mysterious company that wants to run a coal train on the old North Coast rail line, which would actually kill plans for the Great Redwood Trail from the Bay Area to Humboldt Bay. In the second half of the show, in the face of persistent disinformation and conspiracy theories about COVID-19 and vaccinations in our community, I'm going to take a step back and talk with the author and researcher Peter Pomerantsev, who studies the role of disinformation and propaganda in society. He's the author of Nothing is True, Everything is Possible, which explores the development and use of tactical disinformation campaigns in Russia. And his latest book is This Is Not Propaganda, which looks at the expansion of information warfare around the world. We'll talk about how disinformation works to sow confusion and mistrust and why people are vulnerable to it. But first, I am very pleased to welcome Ryan Burns, who's turned up an amazing story for the Lost Coast Outpost in Humboldt County about the North Coast Railway and a mysterious company that wants to rehabilitate the line, uh, the railroad line to haul coal north to Humboldt Bay. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me on KZYX this morning. My pleasure, Alicia. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this Friday morning? It was a nice little Going rain well. last night. Yeah, a little bit of drizzle. Uh, it sounds like you got a little more than drizzle down in, in Mendo County. But uh, yeah, it's it will take all we can get. Really, I know it was very refreshing, but not enough. So this story uh, about the coal train, it's almost hard to believe. Uh, some of the people you interviewed wondered if it was even a hoax, but it's not. It seems like it's real. What is going on up there? Yeah, it is uh, a little bit baffling. Um, as as you mentioned, uh, the North Coast uh, Rail Authority which for years was trying to rehabilitate the the railroad and um you know find an investor to uh, rebuild the the line um especially you know from willets up to uh humble bay through the eel river canyon um they uh having failed to find any investors it was you know long known as the most expensive stretch of railroad to maintain in the country because of how geologically unstable the Eel River Canyon is. Um, and so that state agency has transitioned into uh, trying to facilitate the Great Redwood Trail, um, basically rail banking the length of right-of-way uh, to make use uh, make room for a, a multi-use trail uh, all the way from Humble Bay down to the Bay Area. Uh, and part of that process was that they had to file for an abandonment of the line as a functioning railroad <coughs> with the uh, um, Surface Transportation Board, the federal government. And part of that process in, in you know these abandonment proceedings um, they allow for uh, anybody to come in with an offer of financial assistance to rehabilitate the line and of course nobody was really expecting this because uh, nobody has made any such proposal uh, at least not seriously uh, for the last 15, you know 15 20 years <clears throat> but um, lo and behold a uh, corporation <clears throat> that had just in, uh, formed weeks earlier in Wyoming um, with, you know, no named 
executors, no officers, just an LLC, uh, came in with a claim that they were uh, funded to the tune of $1.2 billion and had well-developed plans to rehabilitate this line. And <clears throat> I found out in talking to some uh, local elected officials, as well as uh, U.S. Congressman Jared Huffman and State Senator Mike McGuire, that it was coal interests from uh, Montana, Wyoming, and Utah that were behind this effort. And uh, apparently some folks came out about six months ago to Humboldt County. Um, so this plan has been in the works for a while. And obviously there's going to be a lot of pushback on this, you know, um, McGuire and Huffman both came out very strongly saying that they're going to do everything possible to prevent this from happening. And as far-fetched as it seems, uh, there is a legislative pathway for this to happen. It's the, you know, the Surface Transportation Board, their whole purpose is to facilitate rail travel um at least in their their um function over railroads and so if somebody comes in with this kind of offer um the surface transportation board has the authority over any state and local governments to uh approve it and that would that would really um jettison the whole great what redwood trail plans right we're pretty far down the planning for the great redwood trail and senator mike mcguire is one of like he's the main proponent of this in the state legislature so um how can they just come in and put the kibosh on all of that years of work i think there's been legislation passed they're they're looking for funding and it's this idea to rail bank um basically decommission this the the rail that goes through the eel river canyon all the way up to humboldt bay but i mean sections of this thing are just suspended in air it's in it's in terrible terrible shape it's not functional as a railroad right now it's not and um you know the the ncra um, the state agency uh estimates that it would take 2.4 billion dollars just to rehab that railroad that stretch of uh, of line and that's not factoring in ongoing maintenance uh and you know the the proposal here is for 100 rail car long trains loaded with coal from the powder river basin in wyoming and montana to be trundling all the way up you know that they, <clears throat> they would come down through sacramento and then over to the east bay and then these trains would run all the way up through uh, marin and sonoma counties and uh you know i've i read in the uh, press democrat that sections of rail through sonoma county cross roads and so traffic would be stopped for who knows how long right hour, it's the smart hour the smart long. rail i mean there's not another smart rail, rail. <laughs> there's not another freight rail it would be the commuter rail that they've been putting together for uh decades now exactly and then uh from there it would continue up through mendocino and and have to go through this eel river canyon which is just notoriously unstable just subject to landslides mudslides it was it's been closed by um, the federal government since 1998, when a big storm washed out 
huge sections of it and it has just continued to erode since i mean if if you've seen photos or you know people have ridden through the the canyon in boats and photographed it and it's just in complete disrepair and as you say there are sections of rail hanging in midair there are, are rail cars that are actually uh, in the river and uh, so you know the people who are are proponents and uh, really hoping for this trail to come through are are hopeful that maybe the the company and the people behind it have not done their research they may just be desperate for a, a west coast port um, they have you know coal interests have tried to get exports from oakland which um, lo local officials there have kind of shut them down they've also tried to get access to ports in washington and uh similarly the you know local governments have have stepped in and and uh said no but the unique situation here is that the NCRA, as as I mentioned, they're they're trying to abandon what the federal government still considers an active rail line, and that that allows this legal pathway that the company is pursuing. And since this offer of financial assistance was filed, uh, the federal government has actually denied the NCRA's request to abandon their railway. Is that right? That's so, right. like, this is actually this could happen it could the the surface transportation board is is also tasked with reviewing the uh you know the, the financial plan to see if it's realistic uh and you know they, they may well find that it's not uh and uh you know senator mcguire has said that he's working on uh legislation that would prevent uh state financing for any coal related exports that's one possible avenue of of um, blocking this uh, and just last night the um the humble bay harbor commission uh announced that they're going to take action to to um, try to block this from a local level as well right because the humble humble bay and eureka there where you are it's in no state to be a, a coal port <laughs> yeah it would it would have to be i mean it's considered a deep water port but in order to ha handle that kind of traffic and um those volumes it would have to be deepened we'd have to have more infrastructure built along the the bay and yeah it it's there's just so much that would need to be done to it's, make this a reality it's crazy but it's real so for people who are listening who want to follow the story what's next for you in terms of reporting and how can people follow your reporting in the lost coast outpost yeah i mean just go to lostcoastoutpost.com and I, i'm you know i'm looking into i'm trying to sort of peel back the layers of this corporate entity that um you know uh, it's obviously got some financial interests uh and uh, they're the the crow tribe uh in montana and uh, apparently the navajo tribe are also uh involved in this um and they have huge coal deposits so uh yeah just um i'm sure there will be reporting elsewhere but uh just trying to um get a little bit behind this mystery corporation all right. Well, Ryan Burns of Lost Coast Outpost, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this crazy story. And I appreciate you uh, breaking it, breaking that story so that we can uh, be in the know about what these shadowy coal company rail corporations are up to in our community. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Bye bye. 
This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. Stay tuned for my conversation with author and researcher Peter Pomerantsev about disinformation and how it works to divide communities coming up next. You're listening to Byline Mendocino here on KZYXNZ. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino features local journalists in conversation about their reporting, as well as issues they face in the age of collapsing local media. The past few weeks, as the COVID-19 pandemic has surged in Mendocino County, there's also been a rise in the prevalence of disinformation about the virus, vaccines, and masking. Disinformation is different than a difference of opinion. It's purposefully false, it's detached from reality, and it's meant to destroy any hope of reasonable discussion or common ground. My next guest, Peter Pomerantsev, studies the proliferation and purpose of disinformation around the world. He's the author of Nothing is True, Everything is Possible, about his experiences as a journalist in Russia. And This is Not Propaganda, which looks at tactical disinformation from Ukraine to Mexico to Syria. His work is required reading for anyone trying to make sense of the conflicting versions of reality and increasingly unhinged conspiracy theories plaguing our social media and politics. I started by asking Peter about why we're seeing disinformation targeting healthcare and the pandemic. If we could just start with the question of what your perspective is, what you might think about what this anti-vax crusade is here during the pandemic, like how disinformation around the pandemic fits into your analysis about disinformation, the use of disinformation is a destabilizing force. So look, it's the same pattern. Um, anything you look at, whether it's what the Kremlin is up to, or the or bits of the far right, or stuff around climate change. It's kind of make facts unknowable by giving non-stop counterfacts or by undermining trust in institutions but then you don't replace that kind of wilderness where evidence seems unknowable with kind of better evidence but you just say well we don't know you can't trust anything therefore all that matters is identity and and tribalism so it's, it's the same thing over and over again kind of like lay waste to the place to the kind of ground where evidence matters and when, when you've laid waste to that, replace it all with kind of us and them. So with health, that's really disturbing because you're not meant to really care if your doctor's a Republican or a Democrat or a Putinist or a, a you know, a non-Putinist. It really should not matter. We'd always hope that health and science were above identity politics. But, but you know, we've seen it happen with the climate change debate and, and we're seeing it happen now with, with, with COVID and vaccines. Um, and it's the same kind of like, you know, once you've seen a few of them, you do get 
a little bit bored almost because it's the same thing. It's like, don't trust anything. You can't trust anything. Um, and then you create a new identity often around conspiracy theories as kind of the the kind of the glue that binds people and conspiratorial thinking as the glue that binds people. And, and you know, the conspiratorial conspiracy has sort of replaced ideology as a way of creating in and out groups before you were left or right. Now you're somewhere within a conspiracy the conversation so in russia it's all about everything you see every criticism of putin is an operation by whatever the cia um and 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 with you know with covid will be be many 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 conspiracies so it is weird and you go across the world and everything looks very very disparate and very disparate situations from the middle east to southeast asia it really is the same technique over and over again um of course it's got a sort of there's like a bottom-up thing as well where why are people so receptive to to this why you know that's the interesting question why do some people not fall for it and remain wedded to a more evidence-driven discourse what and why do others throw up their hands either in glee or in despair you know the, the, you know i i hear all sorts of things um so yeah i mean it's 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 just the one it's, it's the same sort of thing over and over and over again but what is in a little town like Ukiah? What is the end game in sowing that kind of idea that nothing is knowable? Yeah, well, I mean, you want to, you want. I mean, if you think about it, um, what happens if people think nothing is knowable? If you can't trust anything around you, um, a it means you kind of need someone else to help you. It means you're kind of helpless. So, so authoritarian leaders love this because you know the argument is. We live in a world of unfathomable conspiracies. Therefore, you need a strong Putin, a strong Vucic, a strong Modi, doesn't matter, to guide you through this murky world that you can never hope to understand. So it kind of undermines the idea that you can change anything. You'll need a strong leader uh, and, and you'll need kind of a group to do that in. So, so in, that, in that sense, it's, it's, it's very useful. Um, and then it's a way to create group identities the way a cult will get you to not trust anything out there but this little group so so it's a way to create a group identity um you know it, it also undermines you know it's very useful to um if you if you undermine the possibility of evidence and what stands for evidence then you also kind of undermine uh um sort of un uh, undermine people's sort of you know ability to have kind of like genuine democratic debate so you're eating your way at that and again you're pushing it towards a sort of us versus them mentality um you know so so you know those sorts of things uh, i don't know about your specific town and i'm not enough of an expert in america to know the precise aim of the anti-vaxxers but let's try to work it out together Right. Well, yeah, that's my question. You talk a lot about foreign influence campaigns, particularly Russian influence campaigns, but you also, um, in your latest book, This Is Not Propaganda, you talk about the use of these tactics all over the world in people's movements and in political, the rise of political authoritarians and uh, all over the world, right? And you've traveled from China to Ukraine to Syria. Uh, did you go to Syria, actually? No, no, I met, it was too dangerous to go. Yeah, I was, right. I, no, 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 I, I, met, I met Syrians who'd been in the front lines, but I talked to them in Istanbul. I mean, a lot of them go to Turkey, um, you know, to, mm -hmm. to, geez. No, I haven't, I, I, I'm not, I'm not that brave. <laughs> <laughs> so 
here in in rural northern california i mean where is it is it coming from is it associated with the republicans is it uh is it some foreign campaign that's happening i mean how do you pinpoint how do you ever even know and isn't that part of why it's so insidious yeah there's a lot of that the the, the fact that we kind of especially the internet has made things very very even more murky than they were uh because you really can't tell who's behind websites and who's behind online accounts um foreign operations can only really augment what's there already that doesn't mean they, they don't have an effect but but i think we have to be it's very you know you really have to have a real strong consistent long-term um kind of investment to be able to really kind of move people and foreign operations i think by definition are just always smaller so so they just kind of pounce on anything they see as vulnerable clearly both the chinese and the russians have been very active during covid um as you would expect them to be um i mean you'd, you'd have to look you'd have to look um where, where where the anti uh or the anti-covid thing is coming from um but i mean like, you know, a lot of the time it's very overt you know you have you have you know sort of uh rep, rep, you know nationally represented politicians from florida you know um not, not being anti-covid but sort of like you know uh, making masks a, a politicized issue um we'd have to look much much deeper at the kind of uh roots of the specific anti-vax kind of uh campaigns and where they're coming from mm-hmm. well and the point that you make about uh these campaigns augment what's there already we used to say that they don't make up the divisions but they they seize on them that they expand them and and get people um like they use what people already are vulnerable to or what people seeds of truth and then they just explode them into something much more um catastrophic for our communities yeah yeah i think i think that's very i think that thing i mean that's just like think about it from the point of view of a propagandist you know you've got six months or even a year to put together a campaign you're going to look at what works already and and try to see how you can use it i mean you don't have time to reinvent society that happens in a much kind of slower way so yeah, but I mean, I was with the anti-vaxxer though stuff. I, I, I would, one note of caution I would, I would, I would raise is, aside from the people pushing it, and it'd be interesting how much it was actually quite organic and bottom up. Um, it's also like like people's attitudes might be much more nuanced than simply pro or anti-vax. Uh, whenever we kind of dig into conspiracy communities, we find actually it's a whole spectrum from like people who are very extreme, through to people who are skeptical, through to people who might doubt. Uh, big farmer for various reasons. Um, you know, in, in Baltimore, we had the situation where, where, you know, communities of color were historically distrustful of, of the medical authorities for kind of sometimes very sound historical reasons. So I think we'd be very, very careful to just like say, here's the anti-vax community. I think it's probably something much, much more nuanced. And I think almost if we think about counter messaging and what we do about it, it's almost breaking it up into different bits. And not lumping people together. I mean, I've met people who are not vaccinating in different bits of the country, in America, and it's not that they're anti anti COVID. They, they believe COVID. They're very scared about COVID, but they they live rurally. They they weighed up the risks, and they think it's more a risk than getting the vaccine than them actually getting the disease, given given their lifestyle. So again, people are very 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 nuanced, and I think I think it's important to to recognise that, mm-hmm. uh, especially a cautionary bit for media, right? Because we're talking to people who are both just listening and also people who are coming out to these demonstrations. So, and I think I'm ta- I'm I'm interested in the people at the the demonstrations that would go from just um, 
having concerns about the vaccine to actually taking it out to the street and holding signs and making a star of David that they would put on their chest. You know, it's just and, and in one of these demonstrations, they were at the hospital where the ICU is overflowing and and the doctors are pleading to the community to get vaccinated because it's a, an untenable situation. But they're, it's a very provocative thing that's being done. And I wonder when you talk about the range of people who you know, we all have our concerns about big pharma and, you know, the safety of medical procedures. And I mean, that's just that seems reasonable to me. But um, it seems like this effort is more to drive all of those people together <laughs> right under this umbrella. We had a demonstration in town this weekend between small business owners who are concerned about uh, vaccine mandates and the, these more extreme anti-vaxxers showed up. So you can see they're like already sort of being clumped together into this one banner. So, I mean, look, I, I can't, I just haven't dug into this particular campaign, but it would be very interesting to speak to researchers who do that. But what we've seen in previous ones, like Unite the Right, for example, before Charlottesville, that's exactly it. The skill of it in our very kind of fractured world, the skill of the propagandist is to bring together very, very different groups in one flashpoint. So, you know, um, those, when we're talking about the far right, they, those were very different groups. There were sort of classical neo-Nazis, I guess. Then there were people who are um, kind of uh, 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 would claim that they are uh, against Islam to support liberal values. Then there were people who are, on the other hand, sort of for the manosphere, like pro-male. Um, um, and so... Manosphere. Uh, that was thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are people who are defending feminism from, you know, Islam, and then you have the manosphere together. And the skill of the propagandists was to bring all these very, very different tribes together. So, And that's kind of where we're at, whether you're doing an election or whether you're doing uh, building a, a movement around anti-vax. Your, your skill as a propagandist is to bring very, very disparate groups together. It was always about coalition building. In a way, that's not new, but just the extent to which those movements can be disparate, I think, is much more extreme now. Well, and also how it seems like it's not political, right? So you talked about Brexit and how propagandists targeted animal rights activists or people who who had, um, you know, animal rights ideas or feelings. Uh, and that was one of the most influential ways of getting people to vote for Brexit. So it's like taking people's concerns and emotions where they are and then driving them into these crazy coalitions. Exactly, exactly. If I was doing an anti-vax campaign, which I'm not, um, I would be thinking exactly, how do I get uh, everybody from people who are into kind of organic health through to people who don't trust the government, through to radical libertarians, through to um, uh, I don't know, th through to uh, people who are opposed to corporations making so much money off vaccines. How would I get all that coalition together? Exactly. I would, I, that's, that's precisely what I would be thinking about. And you talk about how these aren't durable coalitions. These are targeted coalitions for particular. What in, in, in your book, you talked about how they're quick. It's like you, you bring them together for a certain election and then you go on to the next campaign. Yeah, I mean, because they are very tactical, um, they tend to be very, very improvised. And I think just by their very nature, the fact that you brought people together around, I don't know, if you were being pretentious, we call it an empty signifier, you know, something that, that means different things to other people and people can fill with their own meanings. Um, like so, uh, medical so, freedom, for instance? Well, 
yeah, medical freedom, that's a wonderfully, or, 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 you know, or make America great again, or, or, or take back control, these wonderfully amorphous things that can mean anything to anyone. Um, I think by, just by very nature, they, it's very hard to then keep them going. Uh, you either have to continuously be evoking an enemy, which is why a lot of these movements are constantly stuck. They're always in campaign mode, you know, um, to the extent that Trumpism was used as tactic. Uh, you know, it was very noticeable. Trump was always in campaign mode, trying to constantly keep that coalition together. Once you're actually governing, it's very, very hard. Or once you have to actually do something, it's very, very hard because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're built about kind of creating a, a chimera of, a, of an enemy and bringing people together around very, very disparate desires. So they're very hard to maintain, uh, but then they're quite easy to bring together. So I think it's just that rhythm of, you know, that sort of rhythm of falling apart and coming together again. And this is where we live now. <laughs> this is <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very like you know, even in the sort of the sort of crazier sort of uh, conspiracy communities, you know, you had Pizzagate, and then that kind of crumbled, and then that became QAnon, and and maybe that's now becoming anti-vax. You know, they they kind of like you know the you know the, the people who are, and again, it's top down, it's bottom up, it's it's horizontal often these days. You know, everybody's a propagandist. I, I don't think we need to look for a single dark mastermind, uh, but. Um, you know, it's constantly kind of reinventing itself and recreating itself. And, and maybe it won't be anti-vax for very long and it'll be something else soon. Something even weirder. Uh, one of the points you make is that it it is a parody of sort of what we might call like legitimate social change movements where they're having these protests that look like real social change movements, but they're this tactical thing. Well, when I was talking about that in my own book, I was talking really about like puppet ones set up by government. So especially the Russians love doing kind of, Oh, like the, you know, they like to, to sort of have these kind of like orchestrated pseudo protests that, that are pro Putin, um, almost to mock real democratic movements. I, I think, I think in America, I don't know. I, I think some of it is, might be genuine. I mean, the historically, obviously there's the case of, of various, um, kind of financial oligarchs sponsoring, what seems to be grassroots movement. I think it's a lot of questions about the Tea Party. But um, but in, in America, they, they can be um, civil society, probably. I, I think when we, when we use the term civil society, we have to understand that, I don't know, football hooligans or mafia are also civil society. It's not just you know, the people you like. So, so I think, I think uh, one needs to be careful about accusing everybody of being uh, orchestrated. But again, you know, there is clearly a history in America of what looked like grassroots campaigns being being quite carefully funded and coordinated and sort of given a, a direction by, by political players. Right. And you sort of gestured toward the anti-climate uh, propaganda that, you know, creating a, a debate about climate change and that coming from the Koch brothers... And years and years of work trying to undermine the facts of climate change, right? And also the um, not just the Koch brothers, but other fossil fuel corporations. Yeah, I've looked more at the sort of fossil fuel companies, and they're all. Um, uh, but you know, there, there's lots of other research in America about you know the various the various groups who are part of that. You talk about how um, facts. Like, what is the role of facts? You talk about in Syria, the documentation of the genocide going on there or of the extreme mass violence going on there in the war. It was well documented. Everybody could see what was going on. But then what did people do internationally to stop it? 
Yeah, I mean that's exactly it. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think it's th- th- there's. I mean, again, it, it's all about the sort of the propaganda hitting something that people want to believe or that legitimizes what they do or don't want to do. I think in Syria there was just. I think many people didn't want to do anything about it, and the propaganda almost became an excuse not to do anything about it. Like, interesting. So, so, so we have to we have to always think about the demand side of propaganda, not just the supply side. Why do people want it? Are people looking for these narratives for various reasons, and and why? And what does that say about our about our culture? Um, the climate change one is 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 very very interesting though, um, especially the way it kind of it kind of rose in the 1990s when everything became about culture war in politics mm-hmm. and and ended up kind of like both playing in and attaching itself to the cultural debate um and that was that was very that was um that was a premonition of the politics that we have today you know the climate change debate in the 90s the way you know it became about what sort of american are you you know do you like big trucks and you know the traditional american way of life or are you one of these effete people from the coasts um and that became what you thought about like you know climate change which is you know ridiculous but um it was kind of a premonition it was a real kind of like sign and warning sign of the way things were going and how deeply you know deeply rational they were becoming right so it's all about who you are and it, that's replaced uh, the identity has replaced what kind of what kind of collective action we can take as a society to fix problems. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. My guest is Peter Pomerantsev, who studies propaganda and information warfare around the world. He's the author of Nothing is True, Everything is Possible. It feels it feels scary. I have to say, like facing climate change and watching the chaos of people trying to navigate what to do about it is, you know, you wonder if we're going to make it. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It is. It is very frightening. You're quite right. Because the scale of the threat is, you know, yeah. greater than well, what we've ever. That's, that's maybe maybe with climate change that that's, you know, maybe that's part of the reason is why the propaganda works is people feel so helpless. Um, and it feels so big that almost you start looking for an excuse not to do anything. Um, certainly with governments, maybe that's what happened. You know, in the early 1990s, they're like, we're all going to do something about it. And then they just realize how much needs to be done, that it almost becomes like, let's find some excuse to avoid doing anything. And, uh, and so fossil fuel then, companies then, are like, here, let me explain to you why this isn't real. And people yeah, exactly. uh, are so receptive be, to that. We should always be on the lookout why people are receptive. I mean, with climate change, it is a bit like that. I mean, you know, it's so huge, and I think many people feel just so overawed by the scale of what would need to be done that either you want to forget about it or you want to be confused. Like, oh, well, you don't really know, you know, who knows, um, you know. So, 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 again, I think that's always very important to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. So the difference between identity and actual behavior change. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, that's that's always very important. Uh, um, yes, exactly. That um, that if we really get into the weeds of of these debates, how much of it is about attitudes and how much of it is about behaviour? I mean, what's the role of the of the propaganda? Is its role to make sure we just don't do anything? Then just a bit of confusion and uh, disincentivization might be enough. 
maybe you don't, have, you don't have to convince people all the way. You know, you don't have to make them into rabid climate change deniers. You just have to make them confused enough for them to make to make sure they don't take action. And they don't want, they don't want to take action anyway. So it's actually much easier than, than it looks. So political act activists have this slogan that we learned from um, oh, Frederick Douglass, that your power concedes nothing without demand. Right. It never has. It never will. And what you're talking about is just the utter failure to make demands. Like if we're all concerned about who we are and that's our the extent of our political involvement or what we care about for getting, you know, for consuming media or for, you know, getting information about our community. If it's all about who I am and the scale of things, am I a flag waving American? Am I a blue lives matter? Am I an environmentalist? Am I vegetarian? Uh, then we don't have any demand for our society, for our government, for our um, institutions that will carry us forward. Uh, that makes sense that we can coalesce around and debate. As you're saying, these aren't debates. These are just uh, meant to confuse the conversation, meant to undermine the importance of facts as they exist at all. So where do we go? How do we navigate into our future? So, I mean, I wouldn't lump all those things together. I mean, um, you know, there's... When we talk about identity politics as a negative, we should be more specific what we mean is a kind of state where identity trumps evidence and which is very aggressive and insists that identity is solid and doesn't change and and and, and, and can be quite extremist in the sense that it rejects the legitimacy of others. Campaigning for demands um, and rights can also be about, you know, historical identity, about, you know, whatever, the, the rights of minorities and stuff. But, but it's still based on something that's quite objective. You know, this is the rights for, you know, based on this evidence, because uh, these rights don't exist because of X, X Y, Z. So I, I think it's about, it's not about, you know, identity is, is a huge thing and, and, and we're all made up of many identities. So, so it's not as if the alternative is some kind of like, you know, technocracy. I think identity is, is fine and good and, and, and that's kind of what you live and die in. So, so it's not about that. It's, it's about sort of, uh, public sphere and our discourse still being based on something that you can have a conversation around and demands that you can have a conversation around. Um, you know, and, and I think my, my sense is we do a lot of social research. So when I'm not writing books, I'm at Johns Hopkins University where, where I'm sort of looking at propaganda and what we do about it. And, and, and my sense is once you actually dig into people and society, you'll find that the people who are like, you know, refuse to take down a Lee statue because they, you know, because they are just addicted to the Confederacy are actually very, very small. And you could isolate them quite easily. While most people were, you know, are actually open to having a conversation about what sort of, you know, statues should we have to commemorate us? What sort of America do we want going forward? Um, so again, I think it's very, very important not to kind of allow the propagandists to define society for us even this definition of liberals versus conservatives once you i'm sure once you talk to people and certainly when we do social research we find people don't don't fit in those you know easy little categories at all people are very complex so i, I think it's about not allowing the propagandists to define society for us and then finding ways to communicate which make evidence and a collaborative conversation possible and and, and when you do that i mean it's not a hard science, but it does need some thinking. I mean, you're looking at things like common values, reaching agreement, what a piece of evidence is. Uh, and I think that's very important. Uh, you know that you're talking to conspiracy theorists when 
they start rejecting evidence. When Eddie put a piece of evidence that you put forward, they go, well, you would say that you're part of the establishment. So that, that that's when you know you've lost someone, basically. But again, a lot of people aren't like that. You know, there's, there's that, that's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a scale, but that's often people quite far down the scale. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a long, lot of people you can talk to before you get to that point. Um, and then I think the, the other trick is trying to make the conversation about the future. Not, not, it's not enough to just say, this is the wrong I'm trying to write. You have to kind of work out, okay, how are we going to live together going forward? What are going to be the shared institutions that we have? How are we going to talk about this history going forward if we're talking about historical wrongs? Um, and I think once you kind of organize the conversation with that kind of future bit, I think things get much more interesting. Um, and, and I wonder whether we're having enough of that in America and other countries. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of fear and whining about, you know, extreme polarization and the country being torn apart. And, and it's always interesting to turn that conversation around like, okay, so how are we going to live together? And, and, and there's lots of practical steps to take to do that. What have you found out in your research? How are we going to move forward? And what's the role particularly of uh, media and community media in, in this? Do we have a role? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I, I would say this, but, but I, I think it's kind of critical. I think we really need a new iteration of what I would call civic media in the U.S., who, whose aim when they get up in the morning is, is to foster uh, a democratic public sphere, which means, you know, um, providing a space where CNN viewers and Fox News viewers can, can, can uh, engage with common narratives and, and, and a common set of facts. Um, I mean, that's actually in, in Europe, that's always been the role of public service media. But, but I know in America, America is a different country. So we can't expect public service media to play the role here that it plays in Europe. That's fine. I think in America, it'll be bottom up. It'll be civic media. Um, but someone has, it has to be somebody's job in the, when they get up in the morning. Um, you know, you, it's just a, a different way of measuring your success, not just firing up your own side, not just saying, yay, I've managed to sort of like, you know, say more polarizing things to get my profits a little bit higher this week. It's like, okay, how do I, you know, discuss complicated things, but engage people who are currently not talking to each other. So there's no one way to do that, but, but, but you just have to want to do that. Um, and it won't necessarily be profitable straight away. And because most media in America is very profit driven, that might be part of the problem. Um, the easiest way to make profit, especially in the online space is to, drive people apart um so so that, that i suspect this will be a non-profit sort of media space but 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 that doesn't mean in the long term it might might even be able to make money you are bringing together a bigger coalition of of viewers just maybe not in that kind of like short-term kind of sprint way that most media has to survive nowadays um but you know look 2026 it's america's you know anniversary is coming up and I think it'd be great already to start thinking about, okay, how are we going to sort of make sense of our, our very fraught history, a lot of which we haven't come to terms with? You know, how are we going to tell a story of ourselves, which is pluralistic, which doesn't gloss over the ugly bits, but also gives us a way to talk to each other and, and to move forward together? Um, I don't know. I mean, from the side, it can sometimes look as if America doesn't have a future. But, but I'm sure that's not true. But it has to be somebody's job to make sure that we have a public sphere 
I think we have to recognize that the metaphor of a marketplace of ideas that will just spontaneously create a healthy, robust, um, but cohesive democratic public is, is a myth. And it's, we have to get rid of our myths and, and start to live in reality a bit. That is something we actually have to do. <laughs> we have to make sure uh, as individuals who consume media and also as media producers that, that this is something that we that we support and that we actively engage in. Well, that's hopeful for a community radio station like KCYX, which is made up of some staff and some a huge group of volunteers who are engaged in this project. Um, and what about people who um, maybe aren't involved in the media but but have family members who are uh, involved in conspiracy theories or, or um, you know, movements that make it really, really difficult to have conversations with them. Do you, do you have any advice for them from your research? Oy vey. Um, yeah, I get asked this a lot. I mean, it's, it's distressing really for people. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's really, hard. it's really hard. I think it's really hard, especially when it's like your relatives, because you take it so personally. Um, I think, I think be very calm. You know, it's almost like a spiritual practice, like, you know, breathe deeply. Um, it depends what your priorities are. If your priorities are just to sort of keep your friends and family, just don't talk about those subjects. Frankly, I know it sounds that's that's not a, a very. But if that's your priority, then then maybe you just don't. Um, I, I'm always very interested in, in in where it started for people, though. What, what, when did you start not trusting? What was the thing? Try to get to the roots of it, because often what we see is the kind of surface symptoms of a much deeper trauma often um it's very interesting some friends of mine who are, who are trump voters and not just trump voters that's like you know whatever you can vote for anyone you like but but kind of like you know i'm kind of close to a lot of the conspiratorial mindsets all the way from obama's birth certificates through to climate change and again they would never say it outright they just be very skeptical to the point we're like okay you're skeptical again about something that's quite evidence-based and, and I started asking them, so well, when did it start? When did you start feeling so uncertain about everything? And, and they're like September the 11th. September the 11th was the moment where, like, their world turned upside down. You couldn't believe anything anymore because the, you know, the New Yorkers and, and the facts of what had happened had been so traumatic. You know, the, the world that you knew visually in terms of security, but just kind of on a very, very deep level, just sort of, like, exploded. And I don't think it had ever, ever was ever put back again. Um, and it was interesting that rather than anything else, September 11 was the moment that turned the world upside down. And once the world has been turned upside down, your trust in everything starts, the foundations of your trust in everything start going. So, you know, we were always looking for a lot of other things, but I wonder in America, to what extent September 11 is this huge event, which just was so shocking that people's sense of reality has never quite recovered. Mm -hmm. Again, we could say, why did these people then end up going towards the conspiracy theories? Others didn't. So it's, it doesn't explain everything at all. You know, people react to trauma in very different ways. But that was the earth-shattering event rather than, I don't know, whatever. Um, the culture wars in the 1960s or something else which they didn't care about. It was, it was that. Um, so you're always looking for that, that big traumatic event which actually set people off. And in, in, in Russia that I look at a lot, it's about the 1990s a lot of the time. You know, it's not actually about Soviet nostalgia. People don't actually like Stalin. But the 1990s were so chaotic, people's sense of self sort of dissolved. 
and, and that makes them very vulnerable to a propaganda that gives us a clear sense of us and them. So, so we a lot of it is a lot of this stuff is about almost uh, um, you know it's, it's psychoanalysis rather than media and communication studies is is really the direction we need to be thinking in mm-hmm. uh, and ideas like cultural trauma and what what that means. Mm-hmm. So, so that's um, that that that. That's my sense. So just, I think those conversations can be very fruitful because then it becomes very humanized. And it's not just a person who's saying, you know, I don't believe in COVID, which is kind of out, one might find outrageous and a bit offensive. You actually start understanding this. Is, people have been on a journey usually. You know, there's a long journey that people have been on to get to this place. So you want to get to the roots of that journey. And then you can have a very human conversation and, and start engaging. Um, and I think that's that's probably where it is. But Frankly, it's bloody hot. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's easy to it's easy to do it in a professional setting. When it's your relatives, it's just like it's so uh, shocking to realise yeah. that people that you share so much with and still share so much with live in a different reality. Is it undermines your sense of reality? It's like, whoa, hold on, how can we be so close in so many ways? And yet, not that we disagree. Disagreeing is fine. We actually live in different realities. That that's very shocking. And what you talk about with creating an us and them mentality, right? And you find out you're the them to your family. I know. I, I, well, I mean, I was talking more like friends and stuff, but, but, but yes. I mean, yes, it's interesting. But, but, you know, there's always the caveat thing. It's like anti-Semitism. It's like, you know, uh, anti-Semites always love the Jew around the corner, just hate all Jews. So, you know, it's always like, oh, no, you're, you're a good liberal. You're a, you're a nice liberal. But the bad liberals on MSNBC, they're evil. Uh, so th- there's always a caveat. All right. Well, any last thoughts before we sign off? Look, I, I, I do think it's probably stations like yours um, that are that, that are going to save us. Because, I mean, sadly, I think the big media are so wedded to making short-term profits and find polarization so profitable, they have no incentive to create a public sphere, even though they have fantastic journalists. And, and there's nothing wrong with attack journalism. That's part of journalism. But somebody in America is going to have to get up in the morning and do this. That means building a public sphere, creating civic institutions that bring different people together. Um, they can be inspired by de Tocqueville, whatever. You can, you can find your own American way of doing this. I don't think I can force my – I can't force the BBC onto you, even though I'd love to. I just don't think it'll ever work here. So it's got to be an American thing. It's got to be indigenous and the American understanding of what a civil space is online – in on radio on tv and also in physical institutions but somebody has to do this um so my appeal is to the kind of like you know the philanthropists to support it the 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 passionate bits of society do it start thinking about it start setting yourselves the kpis the key performance indicators around this like i haven't just created a radio station that's successful i've created a radio station that got these two bits of town to talk to each other which they haven't for 20 years um Somebody has to reward that. Somebody has to recognize that that's a success. Um, I've, I've had some very dispiriting conversations with with people in mainstream media in the US. When I raise this, they look at, look at me as if I'm mad. They don't think it's their job. That's not their job as far as they're concerned. Their job is to attack the government, and they do that very help, happily all day. But but that's a, that's a very limited idea of media. That, that there is a very, very, very different tradition of media that sees its role as creating the agora of 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 democracy um but it's a job 
and and as it's a job it has to be kind of you know disciplined as a job and rewarded as a job um and i just i just hope somebody recognizes it in america because um it all looks a little bit of a wasteland from afar yes from afar i don't mean no, 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 not people doing it i mean like from like you know we should all be talking about this all the time mm-hmm. because you know there's a real i don't think there'll be civil war in america but it'll just be we just won't move forward. They'll just be gridlock. Like well, yeah, gridlock. just gnash our gears. I remember I lived in England yeah. for a year, and I remember looking into America. I really missed the natural. I missed the forest, and I missed my community. But um, it just all seemed really mean to me. Like, going back to it, it seemed like society's just in a mean place. Like, people are treating each other so poorly, you know, and saying such horrible things about each other. So this idea of facilitating media facilitating difficult conversations like modeling it but also actually engaging in these conversations that's that's a hopeful place to to leave it uh, yeah there's loads of it so the bbc approach was to model it i wonder whether that really works nowadays because it was easy to model it when there was two tv stations you know you could see there's a liberal talking to a conservative on the bbc and it exactly that's exactly what they did they kind of modeled it and became metaphor for for a cohesive society we're probably not in that place anymore. I don't think kind of like repeating the tactics of the BBC from the 60s are going to work. But somebody has to do it. There's more than one way. I don't want to be prescriptive, by the way. There's, there's so many different ways. There's engagement journalism. There's um, modeling types of behavior. There's a huge role for entertainment to do this, by the way. A huge role. You know, it's not just news that does this. It's it's reality shows that do this. It's it's dramas that do this. It's comedy shows that do this. You know, it, 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 it's, it just has to be part of the mission of, of the media. And like media has always reinvented itself over and over and over again. It's reinvented itself in its life. So maybe a little bit of reinvention is, is necessary now as well. Um, but I do think the threat is, is existential. Um, again, I'm not sort of saying it'll be civil war, but you know, there's a real danger that America just becomes a little bit dysfunctional or more dysfunctional. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Peter. Bye bye. Take care. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, and my guest has been Peter Pomerantsev. He's the author of Nothing is True, Everything is Possible, and his latest book is This is Not Propaganda. You can hear this show again by visiting kzyx.org and clicking on the jukebox archive. Look for Byline Mendocino. Or you can hear the podcast version of the show at KZYX Public Affairs Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Byline Mendocino returns in two weeks. I alternate with Bob Bashansky and Politics, A Love Story on alternating Friday mornings at 9 o'clock. Again, I'm Alicia Bales, and thank you very much for listening. This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio from Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California, you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. 
You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening. Got to choose you. I-